If there's one thing we northern Midwesterners know, it's winter. If you've just moved here, or if you've already been here, you'll learn how to dress, how to drive, and how to clear a driveway when it snows. The longer you spend time here, the more intuitive you'll be to know uh, when snow will fall and how long it will stay. This year, we had our first snowfall in October. Even though it was officially still fall, winter had already come. Now, the first snowfall was like an announcement that said, winter is here, even though it was still fall. I take issue with this. But this is a close reality that Christians live in. Redemption has already been accomplished, and we are already a part of the kingdom of God, but we have not yet come to the fulfillment of time. The day of the Lord has not yet come. Last week, we considered the day of the Lord through the prophet Obadiah. We now know that the day of the Lord will show God's sovereignty and imminence and will bring judgment just judgment and hope. But that is not all that God has spoken through the prophet Obadiah about this imminent day. See, the coming day of the Lord finds its end in the promise of verse 21. The very last phrase of the very last verse of Obadiah says, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. But what does this kingdom look like? Well, Obadiah begins to reveal the answer to this question in verse 18. Let's look at this together. If you haven't already turned to it, turn to Obadiah 18. It's found on ver- uh, page 772 of your ESV chair Bible. We read this. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble, and they shall burn them and consume them. And there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Now in this verse, the house of Jacob is referring to the whole kingdom of Israel. The following phrase, the house of Joseph, makes this very explicit. See, God is including the northern kingdom, or the house of Joseph, um, as part of the fire that will consume Esau. Now this inclusion is remarkable. For Obadiah's audience, because the northern kingdom had already been conquered by the Assyrians in the past. By including the house of Joseph, God was promising an act of restoration for this northern kingdom at the same time that he was promising to restore this freshly conquered southern kingdom as well. As God restores the entire nation of Israel, he promises that the house of Esau shall be stubble and that they shall be burned and consumed. Now, the word for stubble also means chaff. In the ranching and farming community that we're in, I probably don't have to explain that stubble or chaff are the leftover and worthless husks of grain that have been separated from the seed. I also probably don't have to explain that these ignite uh, easily and burn quickly. 
But what I would like to point out is that these four lines in verse 18 lead directly into the fifth line of verse 18, which says, There will be no survivor for the house of Esau. See, the house of Esau will be ravaged so quickly and so completely that there will be no survivor left to it. And this does not happen because of the strength of Israel or the weakness of Edom. It happens because of what we find in the last phrase of verse 18. It says, For the Lord has spoken. This will happen because the Lord has spoken it. He himself will do this. Edom, which has caused so much trouble for Israel because of its pride, will be completely destroyed. No longer will God's people have to deal with enemies. There will be peace in the kingdom of the Lord. Now today we are going to find four attributes to the kingdom of the Lord. Each of these attributes will begin with the letter P, hence the promised P's of Obadiah 18 to 21. This first P of the promised kingdom of the Lord, there will be peace. There will be no enemies left to antagonize God's people. There will be peace. The second P is found in verse 19. Look at what it says. Verse 19, Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim, and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. Verse 19 carries forth the idea that is present in verse 17. Look at the last phrase of 17. It says, The house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. So in this case, the possessions that they will possess is land. Land has always been viewed as a gift from God. In fact, in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 1, we read how God had gifted the Israelites the promised land. This promised land would be a place where God himself would dwell. So here in Obadiah, God is promising through the prophet Obadiah to restore this land to his people. In fact, uh, to more than restore this land, he promises to expand this promised land. I mean, what a great hope and promise, promise this is for a people experiencing such turmoil. Verse 19 reveals that God is expanding the promised land in all directions, to the south with the Negev, to the west with the land of the Philistines, to the north with the land of Ephraim and Samaria, and to the east with the land of Gilead. God is marking off a place for his kingdom. That is our second promised P. The kingdom of God is marked by a place. But how should we understand verse 20? Verse 20 presents a little bit of a puzzle for us. Look at it with me. It says, The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of of the Negev. Now verse 20 presents a puzzle because possessing the land of the Canaanites was already talked about in verse 19. See, in verse 19, talking about the Negev, about the Philistines, about the land of Samaria and Ephraim, and the land of Gilead, 
those four places are all in the land of Canaan. So why reiterate that they will possess the land of the Canaanites here in verse 20? Well, to solve this puzzle, I'm going to use the NASB translation, the New American Standard Version, because it gives us a more accurate translation of the Hebrew. Verse 20 in the NASB says this, And the exiles of this host of the sons of Israel, who are among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad, will possess the cities of the Negev. See, rather than possessing the land of the Canaanites, which was already talked about in verse 19, God is calling his people out of the land to repossess that which he is giving them. So if you look at verse 20, then you see two clauses, one where he says he'll take them out of the land of the Canaanites, and the other, the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad. He is calling his people out of these places and to gather his people into his kingdom. So the kingdom that is marked by peace and a place will also be marked by God's people. That is our third P for today. The kingdom of God is marked by God's people. Now, we come to the final verse of Obadiah. Verse 21 says this, Savior shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Now notice that the word Savior, also translated as to deliver, is in the plural form, saviors or deliverers. This word is a verb. In fact, more specifically, it is a hifal participle verb. Hifal verbs in the Hebrew are causal verbs. That means that they are causing something to happen. Literally, then, this word to save or to deliver means those causing saving or those causing deliverance. The action of saving or delivering others is such a core part of who these people are that this is why they are called saviors or deliverers. It is this active deliverance that sets these people apart to occupy the place of, uh, that is holy and to rule over Mount Esau. Now how different this is from the Edomites. Look back at verse 14. And how the Edomites were capturing and killing survivors. In contrast to this, these saviors in verse 21, um, they are delivering others. They are in direct contrast to these Edomites. And notice the link, the direct link between Mount Zion being ruled by deliverers in verse 21, and Mount Zion being marked as a place of deliverance in verse 17. Those marked as causing deliverance, will occupy the place of deliverance and rule Mount Esau. Now the word to rule means to, to judge or to govern. This Hebrew verb is used to convey a sense of ruling in an administrative sense. Because whatever deliverers may be given to uh, this kingdom, to rule this kingdom, ultimate authority belongs to the Lord himself. They will be in submission to the Lord who owns the kingdom, marked out in verse 19. The last phrase, the kingdom shall be the Lord's. He himself will be there. God, God's kingdom will be marked 
by his presence. That is our fourth and final P of the kingdom of God. God's kingdom will be marked by his presence. This all leads to our first point for today. The kingdom of the Lord is marked by peace, a place, God's people, and God's presence. The kingdom of the Lord is marked by peace, a place, God's people, and God's presence. The day of the Lord has reached its climax here in Obadiah. What began as judgment in verses 15 and 16 and moved to hope in verse 17 has now found its end with the promise that the kingdom of the Lord will be marked by a peace, by place, by God's people, and God's presence. This is our big idea for today. We got to it quick, didn't we? The big idea that sums up verses 18 through 21 is summed up with this statement. The kingdom of the Lord promises four Ps. Peace, a place, a people, and the presence of God. The kingdom of the Lord promises four Ps. Peace, a place, a people, and the presence of God. This kingdom will find its ultimate fulfillment at the end of time when Christ will return and every tear will be wiped from our eyes. We will spend an eternity with the Prince of Peace in the place of heaven as his people glorifying him and in his presence. Now this was depicted for us today by two artists, Jensen and Miriam. I'm going to talk about Miriam's first. He's of this being present. First, we have peace. There are no swords. There are no bows and arrows, nor no guns like we saw last week. There's just peace. Everyone is happy. You see that it's marked by a place because there are uh, gates there marking it as a place. There is people. Specifically, Miriam is there. So we know that God's people is there. And then lastly, by God's presence himself on the throne. Now with Jensen's, we see uh, the same thing. First, you see peace signs all over with arrows pointing in saying, peace, 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 peace. So we know there's peace there. And it's definitely a place because we see that it's a box of a kingdom. And then there's people all around here. And one of them says, I am God's people. So we know that they're there. They are there. And then lastly, we see two on the bottom saying God and God. And one up top on a mountain saying Jesus. I think this is the Trinity. I think. We got God, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus. And then I like that, you know, just randomly, there is an airplane flying by, and it says, am I not supposed to be here? <laughs> That's fun. Thank you to Miriam and Jensen for depicting that for us today. We will spend an eternity with the Prince of Peace in the place of heaven as his people glorifying him and in his presence. But Christians live with the reality that the victory is already won, even though we do not yet see this fulfillment. We already feel the chill in the air and have seen snow on the ground, but winter is not yet here. How does this work? Well, much like our first snowfall in October, the kingdom of the Lord is already here, but not yet fulfilled. How could it already be here? Well, 
It was inaugurated by Jesus himself. In Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, Jesus announces at the beginning of his ministry that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. It is near. As we saw in Obadiah 21, the kingdom of God is the place where God rules. Jesus, the ruler of this kingdom, announced and launched the kingdom of God during his life and ministry on earth. His whole purpose on earth was to affect the promises laid out in Obadiah. The first mark of God's kingdom described in Obadiah was peace. A peace won by destroying the enemies that threatened peace. It's no wonder then that his followers thought that when Jesus announced that the kingdom of God was near, that he meant a physical kingdom where the Roman authorities would be overthrown. After all, this seems to be what is described by Obadiah in verse 18. But Jesus reminds them that his kingdom is not of this world, at least not yet. He did not come to secure a national peace, but an ultimate peace for those who trust and follow him. In his first coming, Jesus came to destroy the ultimate enemy that everyone has in common, sin and death. And just as the destruction of Israel's enemies didn't depend on Israel's strength or Edom's weakness, but on the Lord, so too does the uh, ultimate destruction of sin and death. That's not determined on our strength or in our ability to earn it, but on Christ and Christ alone. Jesus has completely conquered sin and death, securing the victory for us, securing this ultimate peace for us. This is why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, Death is swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? For the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. Thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The kingdom of the Lord is already inaugurated by Jesus. He has secured the first of our promised peace for us. Peace. We have ultimate peace because our ultimate enemies of sin and death have been vanquished. The second mark of God's kingdom described in Obadiah was a place, a place marked out by God himself. Jesus secures for us a place as well. Turn, turn to John. John chapter 14. John chapter 14, verses uh, 1 through 3. Found on page 901 of your ESV chair Bible. In John chapter 14, Jesus is at the Last Supper with his disciples. He knows that these are his last moments with them before his torture before his crucifixion, before his death. Ever loving and compassionate, Jesus in these moments 
tries to reassure them. He says this, starting in verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, and he goes there to prepare a place for us. Those who believe and follow Christ already have a place prepared for them, even though we are not yet there. The kingdom of the Lord is already inaugurated by Jesus. He has secured for us the second of the promised peas, a place. Jesus himself has prepared a place for us. Jesus has secured two of the promised peas, peace and a place. What about the third promised pea, a, a people? Well, keep your finger in John 14 and turn just a couple pages back to John chapter 10. John 10, verses 14 to 16. Jesus says this, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Jesus is our good shepherd who is gathering his sheep from all over the world into this one flock where he will be this one shepherd. Those who believe and follow Jesus are his people. They are his sheep that he is gathering together. By Christ's death and resurrection, Jesus provides the means for his sheep, for his people to be gathered and kept together into one flock. By his blood, we have peace. By his blood, we have the assured hope that he has prepared a place for us. And by his blood, we are gathered in. We are called his people and kept secure in his love. And what great love has the Father lavished on us that we should be called children of God, for that is what we are. First Peter 2.9 says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who calls you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, now you have received mercy. The kingdom of the Lord is already inaugurated by Jesus. He has secured the third of the promised peace for us, his people. He is gathering in his people. The final promised P is found back in John chapter 14. Let's look at it together. John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17. Look at it with me. John 14, 16 to 17 says this, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, 
to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. This Holy Spirit has been sent to those who believe and follow Christ. God himself dwells within us. He is personally present in every single follower of Christ. He is changing us. He is molding us. He is sanctifying us to become more Christ-like, to become more humble and less prideful, to rely on Him more and to trust in, trust in Him more and more each day. The Holy Spirit is within us. It does not matter where we are in this world. God is with us. God has gathered us as his people, and he is already with us in this world. The kingdom of the Lord was already inaugurated by Jesus. He has secured the fourth and final P for us, his presence. All of this leads to our second point for today. The kingdom of the Lord was already inaugurated by Jesus. The kingdom of the Lord was already inaugurated by Jesus. He has given us peace. He has prepared a place for us. He continues to gather in his people, and he is present with us. God has made and fulfilled each of the promises from Obadiah. So we know that the kingdom is already here through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And we look forward to the day that we will be with him in paradise. But how should we live in this not-yet phase? Just like when we know that winter is coming and we try to prepare for it by putting away our summer objects from our, our lawn and, and we get out our snowblower— or we do jumping jacks if, and do some stretches if we're going to shovel all, all winter. What should we be doing in this not yet phase? Well, the book of Obadiah teaches us how to live in this not yet phase. And that's our third point for today. Obadiah teaches us how to live in the not yet phase. Let's return to the book of Obadiah to finish out our time today and to finish out our series on this minor prophet. How do we live in this not yet phase? Well, three weeks ago, we uh, read Obadiah chapter, or Obadiah 1 through 9. We saw that God was very angry with the Edomites because of their pride. Pride is self-reliance and not God-reliance. They placed pride, trust, and security in their defenses, their actions, their ability to rebuild, their allies, their wealth, their wisdom, and their strength. All of this is foolishness to God, but they were proud of it. They strutted around with nothing on. Obadiah teaches us how to live in the not yet phase by focusing on what not to do. See, while defenses and work ethic and, and money and allies and wisdom and strength are all wise to have, none of these None of these things should be something that we 
are pridefully self-reliant on. None of these things should make us pridefully self-reliant. Obadiah 1-9 teaches us that we must humbly trust in God alone for our security. God is calling us to rely solely on Him, to be a witness of calm and of peace to others in the midst of panic and chaos. In this not yet phase, we must humbly trust in God alone for security. Obadiah reveals to us in verses 10 through 14 how pride grows to produce other sins. If we are prideful, it will be seen through our actions. Pride loves self instead of God or others. It can produce sins of indifference, of calloused boasting, of an opportunist mentality, and of violence. It can happen towards unbelievers and towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. And again, Obadiah teaches us what not to, or what to do in this not yet phase by demonstrating what not to do. Instead of indifference, we should be actively and intentionally helping each other. Instead of calloused boasting, we should offer words of comfort and mourn with those who mourn. Instead of trying to benefit from others' misfortune, we should compassionately help and offer grace. And instead of violence, we should seek to restore. This is how we should live in the not yet phase. God calls us to humility instead of pride, and humility loves God and others more than self. We must humbly and actively serve our neighbors. Then in verses 15 to 17, Obadiah points forward to a future day when the Lord shall come to justly judge and to deliver his people. This day is near and will reveal the sovereignty of our God. We will all be judged. We all deserve judgment, and we will all stand before God to be judged. But there is hope, a great hope, a hope secured by Jesus that he alone is able to give us, that those who follow Christ will be delivered. And so we looked at last week how important it was to be delivered, how important it was to trust in God alone to trust in his gift of salvation, to trust in his gift of grace, that he alone did everything for us. Jesus drank the cup of divine wrath completely. There is not a drop left for any of those who trust and who follow him. Because of Christ and Christ alone, when we stand before God to be judged, God will see Christ's righteousness instead of our sin and deliver us to a place marked by deliverance and holiness. But this good news is not meant to be kept to ourselves. In this not yet phase, we must humbly proclaim the gospel as we await the day of the Lord. 
And finally, in these final verses of Obadiah, we are taught what the kingdom of the Lord looks like. This kingdom will be marked by peace. It will be marked by a place, by God's people, and by his presence. In this not yet phase, we must humbly trust in the promise of the fulfilled kingdom of the Lord. In this not yet phase, we must humbly trust in the promise of the fulfilled kingdom of the Lord. Our third point is that Obadiah teaches us how to live in this not yet phase. How do we live in the not yet phase? We must humbly trust in God alone for our security. We must humbly and actively serve our neighbors. We must humbly proclaim the gospel as we await the day of the Lord. And we must humbly trust in the promise of the fulfilled kingdom of God. Instead of pride, we must humbly trust. This means that in the midst of a contentious election, prayer is so important. To turn to God and not only admit that he is in control, but to fervently pray that he would guide those who are making decisions and that truth would reign. To humbly trust in God means that we turn to him in prayer. To humbly trust in God alone for our security means that, when a, that if a diagnosis comes that just knocks the breath right out of us, that we would turn to God in prayer and that we would turn to his word. God seeks to walk alongside us in the midst of difficult times. We need to turn to him and talk with him and we need to listen to his words of comfort and to his words of guidance. We must turn to his word. And in the midst of all this chaos that is going on, that is much more, it is always needed, but it is so needed right now. Humbly trusting in God alone means that if the harvest doesn't come in, if the cold hurts the livestock, if the career you loved is eliminated, that we turn to God in prayer, that we turn to his word, and that we rely on the community of people he has gathered into his kingdom, that is, the church. We were never meant to go through life alone. We need to rely on each other and extend grace and compassion to one another. Because we humbly trust God, we should humbly trust his people. And finally, humbly trusting in God alone means that when the world sets up every obstacle to hinder the proclamation of the gospel and the making of disciples, we move forward praying that God would remove those obstacles. We turn to God and trust in Him. We must humbly trust in God alone for our security. We live in the not yet phase right now, but that will not always be the case. Followers of Christ have an assured hope that they will spend an eternity with God in heaven. And heaven is an incredible place. The book of Revelation 21, 3-4 says this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look! 
God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. There will be no more death, for the old order of things has passed away. No more death. No more goodbyes. No more grief. No more sorrow. No more sin. And no more pain. In heaven, we will walk on streets of gold beside a crystal sea. In heaven, there will be a family reunion. We will be uh, reunited with those who have gone before us who believe in God. In heaven, we will experience a peace that is beyond comprehension. We will finally see the great love of God in all of its glory. And most importantly, we will be with Jesus. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Let's pray. Father, we look forward to this great future day when we will be with you in all your manifest glory. We thank you, Lord, that you secured this for us. Thank you for the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ. Lord, we are humbled by your love and grace. Who are we that you are mindful of us? But you are, you call us your children, and we thank you. Guide us, Lord, and strengthen us to live in this not yet phase while we are on this earth to show the world what your kingdom looks like, to point to you, Lord, and to teach others about you. Thank you, Lord, for the book of Obadiah, how it, how it continues to speak in our lives today. Thank you for this minor prophet, and I pray that you continue to uh, open our eyes and ears for understanding in this book. Reveal to us more truth. Reveal to us more of the mysteries of your heart. And help us, Lord, to grow in our relationship with you. We thank you, Lord, for who you are. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.